we're talking about worship, I feel like it would just be wrong to not come in with singing. Uh, so we're going to sing a little bit, a song you might know, if you definitely know if you're from Mosaic. Um, and you might not know if you're from the other churches, but Andrew's going to come up here and sing it. Since he is teaching this class with me That's right. the third week, and uh, he's a better singer than me. So. <laughs> Let's all stand and sing together.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good and you are glorious and beautiful. You're worthy of all of our worship. You're a creator. You're our redeemer. You're the one who's remaking all things, including us. We pray that you would deepen our understanding of what it means to be a worshiper of you through this time. That you would use such a weak vessel such as I to accomplish your purposes in our life. That we may worship you, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. We pray. Amen. Amen. Good evening. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. You came, you have come to a class uh, called The Sanctuary, The City, and The Street. All right. This is the last year that we as a network, so right now we're going, uh, are we going to black out? Nice. That's cool. Good sign. All right. This is the last year that we as a network are going to do winter term like this. Uh, next year, we're going to try an experiment, which we do uh, a network-wide conference. We'll call it WinterCon, all right? WinterCon. That's the, the beta term right now. And that'll be a, a Friday and Saturday in January next year. I don't have the date for you yet, but um, just look out for that. So you've come to a class called The Sanctuary, the City, and the Street. I'll be teaching the first two of these, and then Andrew will be teaching the third part. I'm going to teach on the sanctuary and the city, and Andrew will teach on the street. The description of this class, the questions, that doesn't mean anything, I'm just saying, that's what we got. Why do we do the things we do in Christian worship? What do they mean, and how do they form us as the people of God? How can we pray and work towards a unified expression of worship in the midst of cultural diversity and division in 2020 America? We're in 2020 now. How can the leaders and participants of worship today reclaim a vision of the practice of Catholic I'm going to define these contextual, cross-cultural, and counter-cultural worship. And so we're going to seek to address these issues over the next three weeks and uh, find a worship that unites people along lines of difference and forms people for a life of glorifying and enjoying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the sanctuary, the city, and the street. In these first two classes, I want to talk about, first tonight, the theology of Christian worship from the Bible and from the history of the church. And, the, and then next week, I'm going to talk about worship and human culture and how those things interact with each other. And I'm going to teach you tonight five C's and next week four C's. So tonight, the five C's that I want to teach you, and these are eventually going to be so ingrained in you that you'll wake up every day and be able to say, called, cleansed, consecrated, communing, and commissioned. Say those with me. Called, cleansed, consecrated, communing, and commissioned. And the analogy that I'll be using tonight is the one of the feast, because worship is a feast. So called is the holy dinner bell, cleansed is the washing of hands, consecrated is the family of God, communing is the feast of love, and commissioned is the blessing after the meal. Next week we'll be looking at the four C's of worship and culture, Catholic, the staple ingredients, contextual, the family recipes, cross-cultural, the potluck, and countercultural, the meal of protest. So that's where we're going over these next week, the five C's of Christian worship and the four C's of worship and culture. Who am I to talk about this, you may be asking? Well, in one sense, I am a student of Christian worship and formation and have been uh, for a long time because I was baptized in the church as a baby and I've been a worshiping Christian uh, for most of the years of my life. And I guess... Sometimes I'm a teacher and I'm a leader of these things as well. And by mean sometimes, I mean every week, leading worship in the sanctuary. 
This does not make me, I'm going to go ahead and put this out there, this doesn't make me an expert in these things. What it makes me is a fellow traveler with you all as a worshiping Christian, seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, and trying to find out how to do that, what that means. One principle that I want to teach you over these next two weeks and three weeks is a principle I want to call liturgical self-awareness. Liturgical self-awareness. Meaning, I want us to be able to know and articulate what is our liturgical, our worship background. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. As I said, I was baptized into the United Methodist Church as a baby, and I was raised and attended church in a majority white United Methodist mega church in the South that ranged from seven to 9,000 members throughout my upbringing. Because I was a musician, by the time I was 12, I found myself as a weekly leader of worship week in and week out, whether as an instrumentalist or a vocalist, Sunday in and Sunday out. My church was not what you call very high liturgical. We didn't have any responsive prayers or confessions of sin. We didn't read scripture in the service. We didn't have creeds. My church was on the cutting edge of what was called back then in the 90s and early 2000s, contemporary worship and seeker-sensitive worship, meaning that what we did was we utilized elements of pop culture to relate to our non-church-going neighbors. So what that meant for, for my church growing up is that we had movie clips, we had video promos that our AV ministry produced, we had dramatic skits with real actors. We had uh, real-life props and set designs in the service, which included a DeLorean, which is the car used in Back to the Future. I was literally on stage playing, and a DeLorean drove next to me in the worship service. Uh, we had a donkey. Uh, we had a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, which was really hard to breathe on stage, but it's okay. We had moving LED lights and fog machines. I ain't saying all this is bad. Well, maybe some of it I'm saying is bad. But in my journey as a Christian, all of this eventually made me pretty cynical about Christian worship and about Christianity. So I left the church when I got to college, and I had a kind of converging, conversion and calling experience when I was in college at my brother's wedding service, in the liturgy of my brother's wedding service. God called me back to himself, and not only that, God called me into pastoral ministry pretty much instantaneously. So I changed my major in college. I changed the direction of my life. I was going to be a professional musician. And I changed. And so uh, I wanted something ancient. So I went and checked into a Roman Catholic monastery. And I was like, these guys got the ancient thing going on. And I was going to stay for three days. I checked myself in. I go to Latin Mass. And I completely freak out. Because it was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I was so scared that I just left the place. <laughs> Eventually through relationships. I'll talk more about that. But eventually, through relationship, I was nurtured by the Presbyterian tradition. Here we are. We're sitting in, a, a, you know, this is an Adventist church, but we're sitting in a Presbyterian congregation, Grace D.C., which uh, hails from the land of Scotland, if you didn't know. That's where the Presbyterians come from. And then I was really nurtured and shaped by the historic witness and worship of the black church, broadly speaking. And then maybe I'd say, too, the Anglican church, the Church of England. That's who I am. Of course, other things influence me. That's my liturgical heritage. And increasingly, I'm investing more and more of my time and creative energy into being a student of biblical worship theology or liturgical theology. And I want to know more about the tradition of the church's worship. And when I say the church, I mean the church global and historic. I mean ancient Christian worship in Jerusalem or Syria or North Africa. I mean African Methodist Episcopal worship in the United States. I mean black missionary Baptist worship. I mean Hispanic Pentecostal worship, Anglican worship, 
Kenyan worship, Moravian worship, Ethiopian Orthodox worship, the increasing movement of multi-ethnic megachurch worship in the United States, Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox worship, Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed worship. Because one of my principles tonight is that I don't get to have the final say about what worship should be. And that the Spirit has created a church that is diverse. And we all have things to learn from one another. But my question for you, I want to I have one of these uh, breakout discussion questions uh, for you and your neighbors, which is, what is your liturgical heritage? I just wanted to, want you to turn to two or three people around you and describe what is your liturgical heritage. Let's do that, just for a few minutes. <laughs> conservative Baptist church in the Bahamas. They only sang hymns and only allowed a piano in the sanctuary. So he'll tell you more about that. What is worship? Mm, that's, what that's what I want to talk about. It's ironic that out of all the activities that the church will spend its time on every year, worship, and when I say worship, I mean Sunday morning worship on the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week that Christians have been practicing for 2,000 years, the church will far exceed any other activity it does with the time it spends on worship. Bible studies, small groups, Bible classes. The church, what it is, is a worshiping community and then a witnessing community flowing out of that. And yet, let's be honest, many Christians, many of us, don't spend much time at all learning or thinking critically about what we're doing in the sanctuary we're doing. In my tradition of Presbyterianism, I had to earn 103 credit hours in seminary to receive my Master of Divinity degree. Do you know how many of those credit hours were dedicated to the study and the theology of Christian worship? If I'm being charitable, somewhere around two to four. I'm not unique. And something about that strikes me as odd, that the thing that Christians spend their most time doing uh, on Sunday in, Sunday out, is the thing we can often spend the least time thinking about. What's actually going on? What's actually happening in there? And as I begin to talk about what worship is, I want to have some practical definitions here. What is worship? Sorry, the text is pretty small here. I know it's going to be on these TVs, but... The word worship simply comes from the old, older English word, worship. And in both Hebrew and Greek words from which we translate our word worship, it simply means... <laughs> it simply means... <laughs> To bow or fall down in the presence of someone greater than yourself. So when a commoner came into a king's court, they would fall down and worship the king, someone greater than themselves. So when the people of God come into his presence, we worship him. We reverence him as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And no matter who somebody is, whether they're a chef or a king or a children or a pastor a street sweeper, a musician, the ultimate destiny of every single human being, says the scripture, is to either be a worship of the creator or a worship of the created. Tonight you also hear me say the word liturgy. Maybe that's a newer word for you, or maybe you've grown up with that word in your life. 
It is used in the Bible, but it's used a lot in the history of the church. It comes from the, the Greek liturgia, which means religious service. So when we just read the story of Zechariah, the priest, right, with his wife Elizabeth, who had John the Baptist in Advent, we just read that story. If you look, look in Luke chapter 1, 23, when, when Zechariah leaves the temple, it literally says he finished his, his liturgia. He finished his religious duty. It is a corporate or religious service rendered to God by the people, including Sunday worship, our daily prayers, the baptisms, and the Lord's Supper. The liturgy is a drama involving both God and the people, the exchange of prayers and graces. Some people will say, helpfully, the liturgy is a conversation between God and his people. He calls and we respond. And so, naturally, we sum it up by saying the liturgy is the work of the people. But... Oftentimes, when we talk about worship, we discuss it using not articulated, but implicit definitions. And I kind of like to call these, if I have five C's, then I like to call these the five hours. It's hard for me to say the word hour as a southerner. I always want to say hours. All right. <laughs> the first of the hours would be that worship is about our offering of praise. It's about what we give to God. We come to God to give him our all. We come to God to give him our praise, to give him our offering, to give him our songs, to give him our best. That's why we dress good on Sunday. That's why we offer our Sunday best. Now, this is probably the closest up here to the, the truth. But again, this is centered around our offering of praise to God. Worship, maybe some people teach us about our experience of the Holy Spirit, our experience of God in the worship service, how God changes us, how God speaks to us, what prophecies God gives us. What gifts of the Spirit God bestows in the worship service. It's about our experience of God in the worship. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where worship was about our entertainment. That's kind of the tradition I grew up in in some ways. You've got to keep people laughing. You've got to keep people entertained. You can't have no awkward breaks in the service or silences. Like, it's got to be smooth. And the people need to feel like they are going to a nice play, a nice show, a nice movie in the worship service. It's about our entertainment. Or maybe you think worship is about our encouragement. It's about going, getting our word that's going to get us through to the next week. And so we leave at peace. We know that God is for us. Who can be against us? I just want the peace of the gospel. I just want encouragement. I don't want to be, don't talk about anything too uncomfortable. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about sin too much. Just give me, give me the good words. And maybe, I venture to say, in the Presbyterian tradition that I'm ordained in, we are more likely to think that worship is about our education. It is about coming into the great classroom of the church and receiving the best teaching, the best sermons we can about the scripture. And we leave the worship service with a notebook full of notes. We understand God way more deeply than when we came in. And... Worship is fundamentally about growing our minds, right? I think all of these are hinting at elements of truth and worship. But I want to lay out for you a definition that I want to work through tonight. And it might sound a little out there at first, but I want to try to substantiate this from the scriptures and from the tradition of the church. That Christian worship is the responsive, glorifying participation of the whole people of God in the eternal communion of love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Worship is God's nourishing feast of love that we are invited to every single week. That's what Christian worship is. 
That isn't obviously a divinely inspired definition, but as I study, as I learn more, this is where, I mean, in some ways this definition is in, it's in process with me. But I think this is a helpful way to summarize it. It's a responsive, glorifying participation of the whole people of God in the internal communion of love. It's the nourishing feast of love. So, I want to walk through this. Worship is a feast. The consistent pattern of worship in the Bible, from Eden to Noah and Abraham, to Israel and the tabernacle, to, to Israel and the temple, to the ministry and life of Jesus, to the ministry of the church, global and historic, and into the new heavens and the new earth. All of our worship builds to the feast. All of it builds to the feast. Basically, if we walk through the five C's in the, in the language of the feast, it would be this, called. God calls a people into his presence, cleansed. God cleanses a people through sacrifice and gives them access through a priest. Consecrated, God marks out his people, speaks his word to them, and hears their prayers. Communion, God feeds his people from the table, gives them signs and seals of his covenant. And commission, God blesses his people and sends them out to fulfill his purposes in the world. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through those five C's. I'm not going to go through all of those redemptive historical episodes, but I want to go through a few and show how this works. Let's talk about the Garden of Eden. Call. The trying God calls all things into existence by his word, doesn't he? He speaks and it becomes. Through the word, all things were made, Colossians 1, 16. God creates man and woman in his image, creatures that are made for God and for the worship of their maker. Cleansed, there's no need for cleansing in the beginning. There's no sin. Nothing is wrong. Consecrated, though, Adam and Eve are given the word of God and they're set apart as the rulers, the king and queen, king and queen of Eden, it says in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So they're given a covenant, a promise from God, and they're given his word, which are laws and, and rules, the rule not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Communing. Adam and Eve are given, it says in Genesis, every fruit-bearing tree in the garden to eat from. And most principally, they eat from the tree of life, that they might enjoy union and communion with God, which is everlasting life. And then Adam and Eve, being fed and communing with God, are given the creational mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. But then the worship of the Creator was exchanged for the worship of the created. And now we have worship after sin enters the picture, after the fall. Jonathan Gibson says this, The worship of the Creator had been exchanged for the worship of a creature. And so an alternative, alternative liturgy, which is idolatry, had been introduced to the world and would remain the liturgical disposition of all of Adam's descendants. And so comes the need to be cleansed through sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice as a prerequisite for being in the presence of the Holy God would become essential for all the future worship of the chosen seed of Adam and Eve, you and I. To come back into the presence of this God, we would need a sacrifice and a priest. But what I want to reiterate tonight is that the cleansing is not the end goal of God's redemption. The cleansing is an ends to a means. 
Sorry, a means to an end. That's right. That God would restore into fellowship the man and woman who have been barred from the garden. So how can we trace this out? Uh, we could trace it out through the life of Noah. We could trace it out through the life of Abraham. What if we trace it out from the life of Israel? From Egypt to, to Mount Sinai, the Exodus. Called. The people of Israel are seen by God in their bondage. And God resolves to call them out of bondage in Egypt, right? God calls to Moses and says, Come, I will come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Why? What is the reason that he gives? So that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's what the Lord says. Cleansed. The people of Israel are freed from bondage and are spared by what? By the sacrifice of a Passover lamb that they're to eat as a covenant meal. That'll come back later. And they're led through the waters of the Red Sea to come through the waters of redeemed and a new people. Consecrated. The people of Israel are brought to Mount Sinai. They're given the word, the book of the covenant. They are consecrated with blood. Blood is sprinkled upon them. And they are called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Communing. The people of Israel share a fellowship meal with God. They beheld God and they ate and drank. That's Exodus 24, 11. And commissioned the, pro the promises of God having been received. The people of Israel are to, to go in, into the nations, into the world, and live as God's distinct people. We could trace that later into the book of 2 Chronicles at the scene of temple worship under King Solomon. These same things apply. The call, the cleansing, the consecration, the communion, and the commission. And this is the, the biblical pattern of worship all the way to when we get to the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus worships in the temple. Jesus lives under the reign of the temple. Jesus in the book of Matthew. What if we took this all the way to the ministry of Jesus? What does Jesus do? The Lord Jesus calls the people to come and follow and worship him. Matthew 4, 17 and 19. Cleansed. The Lord Jesus shows himself to be the healer the forgiver, and the redeemer of humanity, both the sacrifice and the priest. Consecrated, the Lord Jesus gives his people the word. If you think of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7, this is a reiteration of the Exodus narrative where Jesus is giving his people his law, his word. Communing, the Lord Jesus feasts with sinners throughout his ministry. And then when he's getting ready to accomplish the great acts of redemption, his crucifixion and his resurrection, does he give his people a pop quiz on the night before he is to be betrayed and killed? No. He gives his people a feast, a meal. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat, and drink. This is the meal of the new covenant, he says. And commissioned at the end of the book of Matthew, the crucified and resurrected king, Jesus, who has been given all power and authority, gives his people the great commission. Go unto all nations. He gives them a blessing. Go unto all nations, baptizing as you go, making disciples. We could trace this throughout the book of Revelation. And really, this becomes the pattern. Start, so I know that was a lot of information. It was a flyby. But if you see this pattern, it's not divinely inspired, but it's a helpful way of summarizing what the logic of the flow of Christian worship actually is. And it is that worship that begins... Uh, in Eden and in the tabernacle and in the temple that informs Christian worship global and historic. Think about Christian worship global and historic. Called. The church is gathered and called. 
to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church together in the New Testament is called, together, the temple of God, who worship God in spirit and in truth. The church confesses our sin and our need for grace and is cleansed through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus and his perpetual priesthood in heaven, and they are given his peace. Consecrated, the churches are the baptized people who receive, I'm going to have to look on here, who receive the word of God, who lift up our prayers and are offering as sacrifices of praise back to God through the offering. Communing, the church, global and historic, partakes together in the feast of God's love, which is the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the covenant meal of communion. And finally, the church is blessed and sent out to live as God's people through the benediction. Now, this, this shape of these five seeds in Christian worship is going to vary from tradition to tradition. You can look from one tradition to the next and find that there are going to be differences. But this is the general shape, if you think of the liturgy of the church from the earliest times in the Christian tradition, that God calls and God sends. And in the middle, he cleanses, he consecrates, and he communes with his people. From the earliest days, what we can see in the historical record is that the church had a liturgy of the word and a liturgy of the table. And on the bookends, there was a greeting and a call, and on the other bookend, there was a sending and a blessing. And there is diversity in our churches, isn't there? There's even diversity in our Grace DC network. We do different things on our worship service. But what I want to say is that this general shape stays the same. Of a God who by his grace calls a people. Who cleanses, consecrates, communes with the people, and who commissions a people. The order is going to vary. Some traditions, which I'm sure some of you are from, speaking in our context, only take the Lord's Supper monthly, quarterly, maybe even yearly. And there are historical reasons that I might touch on for that tonight. Uh, that's pretty much a last 500 years kind of phenomenon, uh, speaking historically in the church. And in more Baptistic or Pentecostal traditions, if you come from that, there's an altar call that becomes the climax of the worship service. And in some ways, um, the altar call becomes a moment of confession of repentance and of communion with God. It has come to the altar time. Uh, I think for me, historically, it kind of feels like the communion time. It's just, it's just embodied differently. Worship is the story of reality that is meant to become our story. If you want to think about what we mean by worship and formation, it is this. Worship is the story of God, and formation is having that story become an integral part of your story. That you wake up, week in and week out, day in and day out, year in and year out, with this story implanted in you, of this God who has done this in history and is doing this in your life right now. I like what Aidan Kavanaugh, he says, he says, the liturgy is the faith of the church in motion. It is the way that we pray that informs what we believe. You can also say, uh, you know, if you've gone through a Grace DC membership class, you've, also, you've probably heard of these four categories, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. That is actually the story that we tell in Christian worship with the call of a God who is calling us into being, is, who is recognizing the fact that we are made to worship Him. Fall and redemption, God calls us to confess our sins, to receive His grace, He communes with us. New creation, He gives us the word of hope and of life. And in Christian worship, we gradually replace the story of our bones with God's story, the story of his redemption. That's what James K. A. Smith says. Or as the Apostle Paul said, 
we are to put off our old self with its practices and have and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. And how does this happen? I want to say a large part of how this happens, of how sanctification happens for the people of God. How does this renewal happen? It happens by the Holy Spirit together with the saints in worshiping community. Through the word, the sacrament, and the prayer. Year after year, week after week, slow and steady. I like to say in our congregation, spiritual formation is more like a uh, what are, what are like, crock pot than a deep fryer. <laughs> spiritual formation is more like a crock pot or a slow cooker than a deep fryer. And it's engaging in these rhythms, these rhythms of worship, the story that it tells week in and week out, that God transforms our life. I, I found that to be true in my life. We should be able to look back 10 years ago and say, I'm not the person I was 10 years ago by the worship of the church. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to explore for these, last, for these last few minutes we have together, I'm going to explore these seeds in a little bit greater detail for our purposes. Called, I call this the Holy Dinner Bell. And the reason I do is I base this off the idea of a feast and I think about my childhood. And if you're from Mosaic, you might remember this story when I did the five C sermons series, but that's okay, because you probably don't actually remember it. But uh, I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Alabama, and behind my house, there was a drainage ditch. Does anyone know what a drainage ditch is? You know, like all the storm water comes off the street, and it flows through the pipes, and it goes to this huge ditch. Well, I had one behind my house that was really uh, overgrown. You know, it hadn't been touched or maintenance in years. So in my childhood imagination, it was like this rainforest jungle. I'd go back there swinging from vines. I would take boogie boards when it rained, and I would surf through the, the drainage ditch, which is a little nasty. But anyway, uh, I'd, I'd go play there all day and explore for hours and hours. But around somewhere between 4 and to 6 or 7 p.m., there would be this call that would come out over the airwaves of my, uh, uh, around there, and it would be my mom. And she'd be saying in her southern accent, Joel! <laughs> she made my name two syllables, like the Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> so she would call me in for the meal. And that is the image, I want to say, that the call to worship is. The gathering, the welcome, and the call to worship. This is one of my favorite call songs that has ever existed, Taste and See, by Evan Hawkins, the man who wrote uh, Oh Happy Day. You might know that song. It says, Let us drink from the fountain that shall never run dry. Let us dine at the table to eat the bread of life. Lifting holy hands to the Lord Most High. Come everyone, taste and see. Church. No, 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 no
por siempre, siempre igual que exaltarle. Cristo, sobre todo, donde te irás por siempre, siempre igual que exaltarle. Praise the one who reigns forever. Or you might have heard a call to worship from Psalm 95, 96, or 97, which have long been used in the history of the church to call God's saints to worship. If you'll read the bold portions, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the best. The sea and the dry, oh, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship the God Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. All right, technology, cool, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Worship is a responsive participation on our part. It is God's call. It is about God's call and welcome first and fundamentally, not about our offering first and fundamentally. To illustrate this, I have a video for you. Alright, see, that, uh, I got you with that cute baby baby. That was uh, Theo, my second born, with Melissa, my wife. And she's teaching him how to speak. And so she says, put some air behind it, form your lips, and he's watching her. And that is the image of the call to worship. God is giving us words, and we're responding back. We're imitating God. We're in a holy dialogue with Him. Worship is about God's call, and it's about fundamentally a call to come home as a human being and be a human. What is a human being? A human being is a worshiping human. A hum a homo adorans from the Latin, a worshiping being shaped by love and story. David Fagerberg says this, We were created for immortal happiness. And I don't mean by the modifier immortal how long that happiness will last, but from whom it must come. Only the immortal one can satisfy us. And communion is the ordered end for men and women. The liturgical posture of homo adorans, worshiping person, is even more basic to humans than homo erectus, upright person. And happiness will elude us until we stand aright in our vocation as liturgical beings. Everybody worships, and so everybody is welcomed. David Foster Wallace, in his famous commencement address, says this, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Much of what you worship, he says, will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, 
You will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The call to worship is a call to us as human beings who are already worshipers. But the call to worship is the the call from God to come find our true satisfaction in the one for whom we were made for. The one who is worth our worship. And the only one who is the worship of who will not destroy us, but will actually satisfy us. Unlike the worship of ourselves, of our body, of money, or of power. Worship is a command and not a feeling. First of all, that's what the call is about. Worship is a command and not a feeling. And this is one of my very favorite quotes by the late and great Eugene Peterson, where he says this, Very often we don't feel like worshiping, and so we say, It would be dishonest for me to go to a place of worship and praise God when I don't feel like it. I would be a hypocrite. But worship is a command from God. Eugene says, I put great emphasis on the fact that Christians worship because they want to, not because they're forced to, but I have never said that we worship because we feel like it. Feelings are great liars. If Christians only worshiped when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship that actually went on. Feelings are important in many areas, but unreliable in matters of faith. But we live in what one writer has called an age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there could be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different, namely that we can act our, well, our way into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act which develops feeling for God, not a feeling for God which is expressed in an act of worship. And so when we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. It's imperative, worship in the Bible is. Do you know the word hallelujah? is a uh, compound Hebrew verb. And my colloquial translation is, uh, y'all better praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Y'all better praise. Yah, the Lord. Y'all better praise the Lord. <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my colloquial uh, definition of what hallelujah means. It is a command. If you look in Psalm, the Psalm, the book of the Psalms, The imperative to sing, come let us sing to the Lord, happens 27 times. Bless the Lord happens 74 times. There's shout, and yes, there's dance and clap. Worship is expressive and embodied. All right, see the Psalms. This is mostly from the Psalms. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Then Mary and the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went after her with tambourines and dancing. Psalm 69. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. See, the kind of rubric for worship that is revealed in the psalm is what St. Ambrose called a gymnasium for the soul. You know, when you walk into a gym, there's a machine over here for your arms and a machine over there for your legs. And there's the dumbbells and the weight bars and the resistance bands, whatever. Each part works out a different part of who you are. So it is with worship. And so here's the thing. When we look at this screen up here, and we'll talk about this more next week. When we look at this screen, we can sort of see which Christian traditions like to emphasize which forms of worship embodied expression. 
Some traditions within Christian worship are very comfortable with uh, Miriam and following her in tambourine and dancing. <laughs> Clap your hands, shout to God with songs of joy. Some worship traditions are very comfortable with be still before the Lord and wait in silence for Him. You know? <laughs> worship, though, is to be a gymnasium for the soul. Christian worship, if it's faithful to the Psalms, is going to explore all of these different expressions. Maybe some Sundays it'll, it'll, it'll hammer in more on one than the other. But I think that if we follow the five C's, we're following a lot of different forms of expression. There is joy to be had here in worship. There is sorrow. There is lament. There is confession. There is praise. There is bowing down in reverence. There is clapping. There is dancing. Of course, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 150, the last one, Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness, praise Him with trumpet sound, praise Him with lute and harp, praise Him with tambourine and dance, praise Him with strings and pipes, and this is my favorite verse, praise Him, praise him with sounding cymbals. Uh, by the way, I meant the loud kind, <laughs> loud flashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The call is to come in from God and express and embody that He is our satisfaction, that He is our joy, that He is our maker. It is expressive and embodied. So my mom would call me in from the ditch <laughs> to come into the meal. And many days, of course, a lot of days, I would be quite uh, filthy when I got in there. Justin, we, we good? We Let's see. Anyway, I'd be quite filthy when I got in there. And of course, my mama would say to me, what? She would say, some, most days, just go take a shower. <laughs> just go, go wash your whole body. But at least a lot of days, it was wash your hands before you come to the meal. That is the concept of cleansing, washing our hands before we come to the meal. Uh, for time's sake, I'm going to skip this little song, a song we like to sing in Mosaic. But worship is coming clean and being cleansed. It is saying with Isaiah, and I said, after Isaiah comes into the presence of the throne room of God and the seraphim are flying around and saying to one another, holy, 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 without end, Isaiah comes into the presence of this great God and says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Worship is about coming clean. When so many aspects of living in our world today teach us to rationalize, to defend, to excuse what is wrong with us, the things that we've done wrong, the sanctuary is to be a place from the very beginning of the worship of God's people, where we come clean, where we don't have to hide in shame, where we confess in honesty and dependency on God's grace. And the only way you can do that is knowing that you are worshiping by approaching God through sacrifice and through a priest. That's how they did it in the book of Leviticus. You know, in the very first chapter of Leviticus, the worshiper comes into the sanctuary and it says, he shall bring the sacrificial animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And then watch what it says for the worshiper to do. The worshiper should lay his hand 
on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. See, the worshiper was supposed to bring an animal and physically lean and touch that animal. And what that action was supposed to symbolize was that the animal was actually taking the place of the worshiper. The worship, the animal was going to die in the presence of God, just like I should have as a worshiper. But the animal is a stand-in for me. The animal didn't do nothing wrong. But he, the animal, the sacrificial animal in the book of Leviticus, bears the price that needed to be paid and makes atonement. And so if we remember the framework of this temple worship, if we, if we remember the framework of sacrifice and the priesthood, and if we think about Scripture as a worship service, if we think about Scripture liturgically, then this passage from the book of Hebrews begins to mean something deeper to us. When the writer of Hebrews says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, hoped, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, the sacrifice, because he always lives to make intercession for them as their priest. And it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. See, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then the writer says this. This is the point. Now the point we're saying in this is we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne in majesty in heaven. And then the writer of Hebrews he uses that word, liturgia. He says this. He says, Jesus is a liturgist in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. As we worship on earth, we are participating in the worship that is in heaven. And the worship leader there in heaven, in the throne room of God, is the sacrifice and the priest itself, the Lord Jesus. So weekly in the liturgy, particularly at this time of confession and assurance, but obviously through the whole service, we're celebrating the fact that when we worship on earth, it isn't just this flat reality. It isn't just about education. It isn't just about the sermon. It is about the people of God being caught up in something miraculous, which is the very throne room of heaven that we are welcomed into through the sacrifice and the priest of Jesus, priesthood of Jesus. And so... We've talked about this the whole time, but it becomes clear at this point that worship is Trinitarian. Worship is coming to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Or a song we like to sing at Grace Mosaic. This is a gifted response. Father, we cannot come to you by our own merit. We will come in the name of your Son as he glorifies you and in the power of your Spirit. T.F. Torrance says it like this. Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. He lifts us up out of ourselves to participate in the very life in communion with the Godhead, the life of communion that we were created for. Jesus has brought us back. That is what we celebrate in the cleansing. But in this time, we, we also say that worship is honest lament. I'm going to let Sim Chan Ra, the great author of Prophetic Lament, reflect on that.
One of the most significant factors in the absence of lament in especially the American and Western church is a very deeply rooted sense of triumphalism and exceptionalism that we find ourselves expressing in both the American church and in American society. If we believe that we are an exceptional people and a people that are specially favored by God over all other people, then we should just continue to be victorious and triumphant and successful. Uh, the reality in a fallen world, a broken world, it's not the way life works. There are places where we struggle, we experience pain, we experience suffering. So sometimes our worship life can be an analgesic that covers up wounds. Mm. We're not being honest. We're not being truthful. We're not speaking truth to God nor to each other. And so part of the appeal and the need for lament is to say we are missing this in our life. Our gospel, our understanding of who God is, is incomplete unless we know that there is lament along with celebration, that there is suffering along with triumph. And that that's bringing about the theme that what the church needs in its worship is to create space for honest lament. And that God welcomes that. It's often said that more than half of the psalms in the book of Psalms are psalms of lament. And that's the truth. Sandra McCracken says it like this, Our culture is uncomfortable with extended grief. And the church has a responsibility to fight against the dishonesty of living on the surface of things. Or encouraging people to put on a smile on their faces so they'll have a positive attitude about difficult things. And she says, as a music minister, I am convinced that the songs we sing have a role in shaping our hearts. And songs of lament can make space for us to feel more deeply and to speak more honestly before God. We need songs of lament to be a part of our church life every week. And in doing so, I hope that we would not be held fast in our complacency, but drawn out of hiding and comforted by our loving and pursuing Father. Love that she says that. Worship is receiving, though, and sharing the peace of Christ. It is receiving the peace that comes from knowing Jesus as our sacrifice and our priest and sharing that peace with others in the worship space. And so I came in from the ditch. I would wash my hands. And the next thing I, I would do in the sequence, of course, is to sit down at the table to get ready to eat. And in doing so, I would often, most nights, look around and notice that I had been brought not by myself to dinner, but I have been brought as part of a family. In the, in the worship of the church, we celebrate that we are a family in God, that we have been baptized and marked out together, baptized into Christ. A song we like to sing, In Christ there is no east or west, in him no north or south, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. We confess creeds in our worship service, Maybe not weekly, maybe occasionally, but these creeds unify us to a family that came before us, will come after us, that stretches from north and south to east and west. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, from the Nicene Creed, a creed from the year 325, that even today is weekly recited from east to west, every single Sunday in many, many I would say the vast majority of churches that worship. That's pretty, and it's a pretty astounding thing in our globalized world where we're so aware of cultural difference to have such a unifying story being professed and told by a church for so long together across the world is a pretty amazing reality. And that's the reality of consecration. Worship is the participation of the whole people of God, the baptismal family in Jesus. 
For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ, if, and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In a culture where religion and most other areas of our life are privatized and individualized, Christian worship challenges those notions to the core. Baptism is the sign of the new creation. That's who we are, the people of God, the body of Christ, and the family of God. In the New Testament, one of the controlling metaphors is that of family. God calls himself father, and he calls us child. We have been consecrated into a global family of faith. Jamie Smith says, this is what church means. Ecclesia, the word in Greek for church, means called out. It's not a voluntary society of those whose chief concern is to share and build community and to enjoy fellowship and to have moral instructions for their children. Rather, it's a, a society of those who have been chosen, have been redeemed, called and justified and are being sanctified until one day they will be glorified. Worship is also the proclamation of the word. Peter said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. And from the earliest time of the church, the church I told you is the ministry of the word and the ministry of the table. From the earliest times, the, the church has read a lot of scripture in its service, has preached on that scripture. The scripture says to preach, always be ready to preach the gospel and the scripture in season and out of season. That's what we do as the church. We celebrate the word. We reverence the word. We teach the word. We preach the word. And that is what consecrates us as a people. That is God's law. That is God's word to us and empowers us to be witnesses in God's world. Worship is the setting apart of a priestly people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there Peter, of course, is, is quoting from Exodus 19, the passage I read earlier, when Israel was consecrated as a people of God. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As a kingdom of priests, what that means is we gather up all the praise that should be being offered to God. And we gather it and we praise God even on behalf of our neighbors. We, the church, are to be the praise gatherers. That's what it means to be consecrated. And fourth, just moving through these quickly. So my mom would call me in, out from the drainage ditch. I'd be cleaned up, right? Get myself clean for the meal. She would, uh, and then I'd sit down at the table. I'd notice the family that I'd been brought into throughout my whole life. And then finally, I got to eat. <laughs> this is the climax of the service. The fact that if worship is the feast of God's love, then it is at this moment, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, it's when that is realized. I was just talking to Andrew about this. When you walk into a sanctuary, even if you're coming from a church where you didn't take communion every Sunday, the Sundays that you did, the first thing you notice when you walk into a sanctuary is the table. Have you ever thought about that? The centerpiece of the worship service in the Christian church is the table where the elements are shared. That is what we sort of center our worship around, the body and blood of Jesus that's given to us. I'm going to, uh, since Russ left, he would have been mad if I did this to him. But uh, <laughs> this is uh, one of our communion hymns that we've written at Mosaic uh, that really tries to embody uh, what 
the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is. And I'm going to let Russ sing it for you, even though he's not here. is our portion, we can all be filled. Taste the bread, Christ was broken for you. Worship is feasting on and feasting with Jesus. Now this is a mysterious reality, isn't it? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he said this crazy statement, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. I always like this chapter in John 6, because after this moment, you know, of course, it says, and half of his disciples moved, went away after, this, after he said this. They were like, all right, this guy's crazy. <laughs> Jesus said, uh, he took the bread, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you know, there's no debate about this in the history of the church, is there? You know, what these things mean. Right. This is my body. This is my blood. Ambrose of Milan said, He is the bread of life. Whoever eats life cannot die. Go to him and take your fill, for he is the bread of life. Go to, to him and drink, for he is the spring. Gregory of Nyssa, another early church father, said, Christ's glorious body, which showed itself stronger than death, has become the source of life for us. Now, of course, there was a great debate about this during the Reformation 500 years ago. You might not know this, where the Roman Catholic Church taught that in the Mass, or how they called it, when the bread is broken, it's actually a re-sacrificing of Jesus, his body. It's actually a re-pouring out of his blood, and somehow... Uh, though that we can't explain it, it's actually his physical body and blood that become the elements, right? Um, and not all church theologians throughout the history of the church believe that, even though maybe a lot of Roman Catholics would say that. I think uh, the great testimony of the historic church, global and historic, is that the elements are the body and blood of Christ, but exactly how, we don't know. And we know that Jesus' physical body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But here's what John Calvin says. 
He says, even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh, separated, us by su- separated from us by such a great distance, penetrates to us so that it becomes our food, let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above our senses, and how foolish it is to wish to measure his immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive, that the Spirit truly unites things separated in space. That was John Calvin. Like, he's a reformer. Isn't he supposed to be against transubstantiation? Anyway, I'm not going to get into all that tonight. But what I do want to say is that the Lord's Supper is far more than just a time to remember Jesus. That by the presence of the Holy Spirit and by faith, as we partake the elements, it does become to us in the Spirit's power the body and blood of Jesus, which is nourishing to us. So we feast on and feast with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want me to explain that further, I will not. Because <laughs> I can't. But it's powerful. And the vast majority of Christians throughout the history of the church have taught that this is powerful. Worship is remembrance, and the Eucharist is remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. The great liturgical theologian Jeffrey Rainwright says that in examining all the church history for the first 1,500 years, He says, we don't know of a Sunday on which the Eucharist was not celebrated. Attendance at the weekly assembly was regarded as obligatory, even in times of persecution. And he shares this quote. And this quote is from Emeritus of Abatina. And this is one of the great martyrdom stories of the history of Christianity. In the the year 300s, in the early 300s, the emperor uh, Diocletian over the Roman Empire was enacting a horrible persecution upon the church. And he refused any public worship and definitely any public uh, Eucharist taking of Christians because he saw it as subversive to the whole setup of the Roman Empire. And so he put this, this is in northern Africa, he put this edict out which basically says you may not worship in public, you may not take uh, the Eucharist in public. And this group of Christians, 49 of them, were found uh, gathered together taking, taking the Eucharist. They were all put on trial and were all put to death. This quote comes from Emeritus of Abatina, and he was the one who hosted the church in his home and was a Christian. And he says, we have to celebrate the Lord's Day. It is our rule. We could not live without celebrating the Lord's Day. And by that, in the language that he used, he meant, we can't live without celebrating the Eucharist. That's just what we do as the Christians. And if, if, if that's a problem with you, you're just going to need to kill us. That's basically what he said. So it has been viewed for much of the church's history as uh, irreplaceable, powerful, an essential part of what worship is. Now I know, in our context, we live post-Protestant Reformation, we live in a lot of traditions where the Eucharist is uh, celebrated, uh, definitely not every Sunday, maybe every week. Um, And there's grace for that, that's all I'm going to say, there's grace for that. But in our conviction, we really feel like if worship is the feast of love, if, if worship is about communing with God, how could we refuse communion? Why would, we, why would we not want to take from the feast? Why would we not want to go to the table? Why would we not want to feast with Jesus? So worship is the nourishment and the remembrance. And worship is the economy of God's grace. I love what James K. Smith says. He says, there are no box seats at the table. There's no reservations for VIPs. There's no filet mignon for those who can afford it. While the rest eat crumbs from the table. The Lord's table is a leveling reality in a world of increasing inequalities, an enacted vision of a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine. 
Everyone gets the same portion of Jesus. Jesus doesn't show favoritism. Jesus doesn't give more of himself to the high performers or the high earners. We are all poor. We all need the grace of Jesus. And this is what the table teaches us. And finally, the last scene. I've come in from the ditch, I've cleaned up, I've sat at the table, I've eaten, and then my mom sends me off to bed, in peace, well fed. This is the commissioning, the blessing, and the benediction. And benediction, if you know the origin of that word, literally just means a good word. This is how we close out Christian worship. Somebody's got to say something at the end, and they usually say, a traditional Christian benediction, or peace be with you. I love this benediction from the Kenyan Eucharistic liturgy from the Anglican Church in Kenya. And listen to this after what we've just explored tonight. Listen to this language. Almighty God, Eternal Father, we've sat at your feet, we've learned from your word, and we've eaten from your table. We give you thanks and praise for accepting us into your family. Send us out with your blessing to live and witness for you in the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. Amen. See, I ain't making this stuff up, right? Worship is a feast. I mean, this is how the church understands it in so, in so many parts of who the church is. I love that statement. We've sat at your feet. We've eaten from your table. You've brought us into your family. Now send us out with your blessing. We go out with your blessing. Worship is a good word. Behold, I am making all things new. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Worship is an empowerment for our mission and our calling in the world. We have been written into God's story and mission. In the work that he has laid before us in our life, we can't see or comprehend how our work is going to fit into the beautiful, grand new heavens and new earth, but we aren't called to know everything. We're called to do little things with great love, trusting that the story writer knows what he's doing. So therefore, in our vocations and things that we're called to do, whether we're a cleaner or a CPA, a dancer or a doctor, a homemaker or a home builder, whether student or chef, whether musician or marketer, we are called to steward our vocations for the sake of the kingdom. And that is how we're sent out. So this is the story that the church tells in the sanctuary. The five C's. Called and cleansed and consecrated and communing and commissioned by God. The story of worship is the story of reality. And the task of formation for us as Christians is to have that story invade every part of our life. Worship actually is the real world. We think we're coming in from our real life. Our day jobs. And we're coming to do the thing called worship. But what if it's backwards? What if the sanctuary is the real world? The world as it's supposed to be. The world as God tells it like it is. It is not make-believe. This is not a fairy tale. Worship is cosmic, people. That's what we do every week. We're invited into a cosmic reality. As the great Greek Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann once said, in worship, we leave the world for the sake of the world. And we come back to it, a changed people. Bobby Gross says, most of, us, most of us think of ourselves as ordinary people living quiet lives in unremarkable places. But listen, we live inside a big story. One that started long before our birth and one that will go on long after our death. One that's as wide as the universe and as old as eternity. The story of God is centered in Jesus the Christ. 
Our personal narratives take the fullest shape and deepest meaning in relationship to God's purposes for us and for the world. So this is the story of Christian worship. We're called to the feast. We're cleansed for the feast. We join in the feast with the baptismal family of Jesus. We feast on Christ and with Christ, and we are sent out with a good word. That's the sanctuary, folks, in the story of Christian worship. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing the, the doxology at the end here, but I wanted to open up again for any, any questions. I know that was a lot tonight. I know you'll wake up tomorrow morning saying the five C's. And any questions that this has stirred up for you? No pressure. I know it's late on a Thursday night. What's up, Tom? What's up? Um, I really loved your Eugene Peterson quote on the kind of role of our lying emotions, especially mm -hmm. as we think about Sunday worship. Yes. And I wonder if you just kind of expound upon both, and as you think about your role as a worship leader a lot of Sundays mm -hmm. in Mosaic, as well as the believer's role who's stepping into that, of that, that dichotomy between don't come in pursuing an emotional experience, mm -hmm. come in out of obedience, worship, worship is obedience, mm -hmm. um, and we're, I think we can all associate or think about the places where we know churches that go overboard or need the direction, right? right? Either the one that's maybe pulling the Harley Davidson up on the stage, you know, to like create the, the effect. Yes. Uh, or the one who says, there will be nothing but a piano and that's these right. hymns, and we will strip all emotion out of this. Don't say amen. Right, because of this. And so I just wonder if you talk about like, I feel like there's a great tension there of not wanting to kind of go, oh, I'm doing emotion. Oh, I shouldn't do that. No, maybe this is the Holy Spirit. Just kind of how that, how you've seen that work out. Well, I think you have to be honest about the sociological realities of worship. You know, and we'll talk about this next week. You, you become like the people you worship with. You know, and all of us have prayer, uh, doxological language. We have ways we pray. We have ways we praise. And, you know, pretty much communities kind of, they mold to one another, right? And so if I go and still and silent Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian Church, that's a sociological reality. They've been trained to worship that way. If I go to a really boisterous, loud Pentecostal church, that's another social, sociological reality that they've been formed to worship uh, a certain way. So I think you have to be honest about that. You have to be honest about who you are, what your background is, and what you're going to be most comfortable with. But I think that's why I do lean, in, lean into the Psalms, to say, like, the Psalms understand, the, the Word of God understands that you might not feel a certain way, and you might have a hard time um, being joyful on a certain Sunday. But that's why, and, and of course some, days, some Sundays you do come in depressed, and you're going to stay kind of in a depressed mode, and God accepts us as we are. But I do think that the worship service, through the different aspects of it, through the different parts of it, is to explore, explore all those different emotions. And I think it's okay, based on the book of Psalms, like I'm saying, I think it's okay for us as worship leaders to lead people emotionally. I don't think you can ever get away from that. I think, you know, people say, I'm worried about being manipulated emotionally in the worship service. I would kind of say you're always being manipulated. 
You're always being led emotionally by someone or by a group of people. I think the job of liturgists and worship leaders in God's story and in the scriptures is to lead people through a multi-dynamic emotional journey of life with God. Because you do have reason to rejoice. He's, he's woken you up. Some, some of the most joyful communities, speaking historically, are the ones who suffer the most. Because they come into worship ready to give thanks that God has brought them through another week. Because that wasn't guaranteed. So, we have to learn from one another. But I also think it's the role of pastors and liturgists and worship leaders to take people gently. But people want to be led. And people need to, to experience the different facets of the, the emotional life with God. And I think they need to do that on a weekly basis. Because the Christian life needs to be this multi-dynamic, like, I should be able to go to a place of sorrow and confession, but I also should understand joy in Jesus. And I don't have to live, um, you know, in, in one certain place or another. So those are just some remarks about that. That's a great question. What, what do you... What is your um, word to the worshiper who comes in with obedience? They come, they come obediently into the worship service, but they leave unchanged or I didn't get anything, I wasn't feeling it, or mm -hmm. it, it didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel this feast thing that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel the same way that I got out as I came in. What, what do you, what's your word to that? My word to them is, I'm a pastor, and I, to I totally feel that way a lot of Sundays. You know, I, g I get in my car, and I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm a worship leader, so I'm always evaluating my performance or whatever. And so a lot of Sundays, I just get in my car, and I'm like, man, that was a bad Sunday. <laughs> man, the slides broke. Man, my sermon did not hit today. Um, so in one sense, I understand what it's like to live in the short-term reality of and that's where Eugene Peterson says feelings are great liars. Mm. Because you don't know what God is up to in your life and in your community. Because sometimes that's not made clear for years and years. Mm. But the testimony of the scriptures is that God is at work. The Holy Spirit is there. God is changing things. Uh, God is transforming by his word. It's another Sunday. Uh, you know, I like to... Uh, Russ and I like to say, you know... <laughs> about our sermon performance. I don't know if I should be saying this, but sorry. Right. Like, some weeks you're going to cook up filet mignon, and some weeks it's more like uh, McDonald's or PB&J, you know? And you know what that's like. Just transfer that over to your experience as a worship participant. Some weeks, like Easter Sunday, this past year was just, gosh, a mosaic. It was just one of the best worship services ever. And I left like, yes, Jesus is doing stuff. And then, whatever. And then another week it'll be like, oh, man, I don't even know what any of this is all about. I don't feel the feast. I don't feel the joy. But here's what I did do. I did feast. I did take the body and blood. It was still set out for me there. The meal was still set. The table was still set. That never changes. And so that's why uh, I love that image of the feast. Because whether or not I experienced it in the most full of ways, and even if that lack of experience lasts for quite some time, like, it's not going to be like that forever. So, yeah. One more question for you. You know, you, you uh, in Hebrews 7, the ministry, you talk about Christ being the liturgist, yeah. the worship leader. How do you as a worship leader um, 
show that it is not you that it, you know, because I think a lot of times you talk about the manipulation and people see you up there mm. and they see the, the worship leader as a performer in a sense. Um, so how do you as a worship leader show that it's, it's, it's Christ who, you know, showing this mysterious reality that Christ actually is the worship leader mm. and not you? Right. That's a good question. I have to think about that. But really, I mean, that's done cohesively in so much of the worship service. I don't know how to expressly answer that in terms of a song. But, you know, that's why we have the certain elements of the liturgy that we do. You know, to say, like, it is not me who's calling you to worship. It is the God who made you and the Christ who redeemed you. It's not me who's forgiving your sins. It's Jesus. It's not me whose name you're baptized into. That's Jesus. It's not me who you're feasting with and upon. That's Jesus. It's not me who gives you hope and a purpose in your life and a good word to go out. That's Jesus. You know, Jesus does all the five C's for us. Amen. You know? So that's good. Um, so one thing I sometimes find a little bit confusing is that um, we talk about this feast Mm. And yet, like, in a very literal sense, it's maybe more of like a, you know, small midnight snack. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know that it can be a lot more than that, even if it's physically not more mm -hmm. than that. Um, but I was wondering if, if, I don't know, if you see any tension there? Mm. I mean, I don't know a lot about what the feasts look like in other parts of the world right. at other times. That's good. So, from the earliest documents, it appears that a lot of early Christians obviously worshipped in houses, and they would have the equivalent of the, what was called the love feast, or what we would call the church potluck, after service, and sometimes it's even confusing in the historic record whether it's, it, they do the Eucharist during that feast, because Jesus did the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, during a, a Seder meal, a Passover meal, which was a larger feast. And then at some point, he, he enacted the Lord's Supper. So, um, I get what you're saying. One of my professors in seminary says, you know, if you, we, at Mosaic, we worship with a big loaf of bread. <laughs> they, you know, a lot of churches pass around a big loaf of bread. He says you should tear off a huge hunk of it and drink a large cup of wine <laughs> as a symbol of that feasting. Um, but I do, I do understand what you're saying. And I, and I think it is simple. We're experiencing symbolic reality. But I also think some of the riches, uh, I kind of lament that at Mosaic we can't follow every service with meal. Because I think there's just something really sacred about that as a Christian community to follow a worship service with a feast uh, every week. Um, and the Sundays that we are able to do that with our space limitations uh, are some of the most beautiful Sundays to me. Because it really embodies that reality in a different way. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it is just a symbol of the greater feast to come. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to think about that one, too. Thanks. Yeah? Um, so, this is going to be a very Presbyterian question. Okay, yeah. I, I, I'll try to be very Presbyterian. <laughs> Most days I don't feel very Presbyterian. But. And so, I come out of a, a tradition of Presbyterianism where I think the, the very buttoned-up style of yeah. worship theologically justified um, through this concept of what they call regulative principle mm. of basically oh, yes. God commands what he wants us to do in worship and anything that's not commanded 
bit with Psalm 150. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious, like, hey, what, what do you think? I mean, is there I think you're right on. on that concept? I said, cool. You want to be regular? That's awesome. So give me the loudest symbol that you can get. I need a lot of shouting. I, one theologian, I can't remember who said it, he said, if you want to understand the Bible's theology of worship, it boils down to one word, loud. <laughs> but worship in the Bible is really loud. I mean, it, when you read the Psalms and you read them with some contextual imagination, it, it is that. Um, and, you know, and so I, that's what I always say. I think your instincts are correct for people who, who don't want any dancing or shouting or expressiveness in their worship services because it's not explicitly said in the Bible, but I would say it is. It is commanded of that in the Bible. And uh, I don't think it's ever possible to just, as human beings, worship exactly to the... How do I want to phrase this? Be careful here. <laughs> Basically, I'm saying I think humans are always doing cultural and contextual things in worship, and we cannot uh, avoid that, and nor should we, because Jesus incarnated himself in human culture, and he's not ashamed of that. And so there's no way to truly worship exactly by every single proof text verse. You know, that's not really possible. But I don't think we should worship in ways that oppose the scriptures. That's all I'll say. All right. Let's get out of here since it's late. Um, and let's just sing the doxology. Praise God.